Welcome to this week's episode of Legally Cloud, where we have an interesting conversation with Mark Salomon about SetBuilder. On to the show. You don't need law school. Law school's for people who are boring and ugly and serious. Welcome to Legally Cloud with Mike and Xavier. Welcome to episode 12 of Legally Cloud. And man, have we got some great stuff for you today. Well, I guess I should say I have some great stuff for you today. Hey, this is Mike. JB is off doing his full-time job while I get to be here and play a little and have a little fun. So welcome to episode 12. And I want to start off today with just a story, just an experience that happened to me. It's not technology related, not legally related whatsoever, but I thought it was interesting. So I live in a, I live in Utah. And in Utah, you know, I live in a mature neighborhood, some older houses, lots of trees, very well established. And I don't know, about three months ago, two months ago, we ended up having a family of raccoons move into our chimney. And you're probably wondering, well, Mike, how did you know you had a family of raccoons? Well, when I would be sitting in our in our living room watching some television or just relaxing, I could hear these little squeaks coming from our fireplace. And in the end, we had someone come over and he says, yep, you've got raccoons. And so we decided we needed to evacuate the raccoons and get them out so they could go back to their natural habitat. And there are some side effects of having the raccoons in there that wouldn't have been so nice for us either. So in talking with this gentleman that does this for a living. Uh, there were several ways we could go ahead and, and do that. But the way that we chose, or at least started with, was he said, what you need to do is you need to take a piece of newspaper and you need to put it in your fireplace and burn the piece of newspaper. And he said, you know, it's going to burn for maybe 10, 15 seconds and the smoke will go up the chimney and it will frustrate. It will just start to uh, make the raccoons a little bit mad, but it won't harm them. There's not enough smoke to choke them. So don't worry. We we did it the humane way. And he said, you should do that every night. Do it for about three hours. So burn a piece of newspaper every 15 to 20 minutes, and it should annoy them enough to where the mom will take her, her babies and, and take them out and go find somewhere else to live. Well, doing that for three hours every single night that's a lot of dedication, and me and my family aren't that dedicated to do something like that. So I was thinking, you know, sometimes I'm down watching, I'm watching TV, and we've got a, a speaker that's right there and on the chimney, and sometimes when the TV would get loud, there would be an explosion and something I'm watching, I'd hear these little chirps. And so I'm thinking, well, maybe the noise bugs them. So what we did is we, we took a radio, in fact, I have an old iPod that has hundreds, thousands of songs on it, and we just started playing it 24 hours a day. And who knew that something that I really enjoy, Barbara Streisand, is something that they didn't. So it's a double whammy. I get to enjoy it, and they don't. So after about 36 hours, 48 hours of playing it nonstop, we went and checked, and lo and behold, the raccoons were gone. So I thought it was very, very interesting, a unique experience for us. So anyway... On to the rest of our podcast. 
And what we're going to do, or what I'm going to do, is is start off today with some upcoming Net Documents events. You know, the world continues to get smaller, and Net Documents continues to grow, and and uh, so we're we're everywhere it seems at the same time. But as far as some upcoming events that might be of interest to you, so on June 13th we have our Net Documents Virtual Partner Summit, and this is something new that we're trying, where you don't actually have to travel. You can simply register for our partner summit. And for those of you that would like to register but have but can't find out where, please tweet me at LegallyCloud on Twitter, and we'll be more than happy to guide you in the right direction. But that's going to be held on June 13th, and we're bringing in all of our subject matter experts to talk about anything Net Documents related. And then June 18th and 19th, we're going to be in London for the in-house division annual conference. And right off the tail of that, June 19th to the 21st, there's the Strategic Technology Forum in Marbella, Spain. July 4th is the Rock and Law Festival in Barcelona, Spain. I looked that up, and that should be quite interesting. And then in October, October 6th through the 8th, we would encourage you to register now for our annual Elevate event that is going to be held in Salt Lake City, Utah, and plans are well underway for that particular event and it's it's going to be something to remember as have the others and then on november 6th we're going to have our other annual elevate event in london and it's going to be in the county hall building so we're really looking forward to that and if you remember last year with the african drummers wait till this year it's going to be even better so those are some upcoming upcoming events with with net documents and we're looking forward to getting to meet everyone and uh, just continuing and, and building our relationships. All right, so on today's episode, we've got a very special interview that I had some time and got to sit down and chat with Mark Salomon, one of our senior product managers. And we have some interesting things to, to discuss. So hold on tight, and we'll be back right after the break. Welcome back to our second segment of the podcast, Legally Cloud, and today we've got a special guest. You know what? Every week we really have a special guest, but today is an extra special guest. We have Mark Salomon, who's a senior product manager here at NetDocuments. Mark, welcome to the show, and thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. You know, with, with every every guest on our podcast, we we start off with a few questions that allow us to get to know our guests guest just a little bit more and you are no exception we want to know more about you so can you start off mark and maybe introduce yourself you know tell us who you are your history with net documents and and kind of a little bit of your background sure happy to do that uh, well as you already introduced me but i'm mark salomon a senior product manager at net documents um and i'm responsible for several different uh areas several different products in net documents um, like collaboration and mobility and ND Thread uh, Builder now as well. I have been at NetDocuments for a little over three years. Um, in terms of my background, um, I am actually a, I guess we call it a reformed attorney. Um, used to, uh, that was my first job. I went to law school. My first real job was uh, I was an associate at a law firm in New York. Um, and then I actually became in-house counsel at an internet startup company. Um, and that's really where I got interested in technology. Um, and I actually switched careers and I became a software developer. Um, and then I gradually 
moved my way back into uh, legal into into the legal sphere um, as well, um, working on the um, working at several law firms, but not as an attorney um, until I turned over to the dark side and started working for uh, legal technology vendors. Uh, so. You know, I wouldn't consider legal technology vendors the dark side because I've been in the dark side most of my life then. <laughs> but I'm curious, what, why the, why the switch? I mean, you spent all this time in school focusing on practicing law, and then after a while you decide technology. Why, why the change? You know, um, and I guess I could still say this about myself. I don't really know what I want to do with my life, and I certainly didn't know when I was 21 and graduating from college. So law school seemed like a good way to spend three years trying to figure it all out. Um, and, you know, so I went and I started practicing law, but I think I quickly realized that this it wasn't something that I was going to do for the long run. I certainly didn't want to be a partner um, at a law firm. Nothing against anybody who wants to be a partner, but I knew that it wasn't for me. Um, and the, the move to this, um, to be in-house counsel, this internet company was very exciting. This was sort of uh, salad days, maybe you'd, you'd think of it. This was 1996. Um, so it was very exciting. It was all very new. Um, and really just being there, I, I just got bitten by the technology bug. Um, we were a small company. We were all involved with everything, with product design and roadmap and everything like that. And, and it just really found it to be really fascinating and interesting. Um, and just thought it would be a better direction to take my career. Well, that's great. And hopefully, you know, you've enjoyed the change. Technology is, is ever-changing, and, and hopefully it's been satisfying from a personal standpoint. Yeah, so, that's one of the things that makes it attractive. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, so the next question is, tell us something unique about you, Mark. So I will relate this to, to what we were just talking about in terms of my, my background. Um, so the first job that I ever got in legal technology, which was actually a job as sort of a programmer, business analyst, KM person at Davis Polk in New York, I actually got that job through somebody that I met on jury duty. Um, That's pretty cool. I think that is yeah. definitely unique. That's great. All right. Yes. So you're at your favorite hometown restaurant. What's your go-to order? And list out your restaurant, too. We want to give them a plug. So my, my restaurant is, I don't know that I have a favorite restaurant, but I was going to say I live uh, about two blocks away from this small commercial district in my town. Um, there's a well-known pizza place known as Mr. Dino's, and they make a very mean slice of pizza called Grandma's Pizza. Um, they probably have that in lots of different places, but it's really my favorite slice um, that they make. It's sort of a little thicker, a little crunchier than a regular slice. Um, so I would say that's my that's sort of my go to order when I go there. How do they top it? What do they put on it? It's just whatever. I mean, it's just there's cheese and sauce. I mean, it's just a standard slice. I guess you could. I've never had anyone get grandma's with anything on it. Um, you could do that, but you don't really need to add anything. It's just sort of a, a unique type of slice uh, compared to, you know, it's sort of like a Sicilian slice. It's just sort of a different type of pizza. Oh, nice. Nice. OK, great. Yeah. And then last personal question. So. What do you wish that you had known when you started your career? I probably wish I knew what I wanted to do um, since being a lawyer was not what I wanted to do. And, you know, I, I can't say it was it was the wrong way, but maybe if I'd known better then, I, I would have started out on something else um, earlier on that, that would have taken me in a different direction. Okay, fair enough. All right. Now, you're in legal technology now, so let's focus a little bit on legal technology specifically you know, very, very recently, NetDocuments announced 
and then hosted a webinar talking about a new tool within the platform called Set Builder. So, and I know that's one of the products that you manage. So, tell us a little bit about Set Builder. What what does it do? What are some typical use cases? What are some what are some benefits to those who might use it? Um, so, you know, Set Builder is a way to um, create uh, an outline or an index of documents that need to be delivered basically as a single set. Um, and then you can basically take that index and you can point it to different documents that are stored in that documents. And then you can use that to generate a single PDF file uh, with all those documents hyperlinked together. Um, you know, this really covers, you know, it's interesting as you think about it, this really covers several different uh, scenarios and use cases that you find in law firms and, and, and other types of companies as well. Um, you know, but it's interesting how often you see the same thing. The most common example really is just, is you're doing a, a transactional closing. Um, and, I've, and I've done those myself, myself when I was an associate. Um, really where you're just gathering together a lot of documents in a certain structure. Um, and usually it's a sort of, there's a, a standard structure for each type of, of transaction that you're working on. Um, and this is really done in, in um, you know, this has been done the same way for, I'm going to say centuries, um, but at least for decades at law firms, um, where you gather all the documents together in a room in this big, um, you know, you've got this um, this contraption where you have every single document, you know, you're maintaining this this index, usually it's done in, in Word and you're constantly marking it up and revising it based on new documents that are coming in. Um, you're, it's a very manual process of checking to make sure you have everything about replacing a document with a newer document. I mean, literally, you pull the document out and you put in a new paper document. Um, and then when it's all done and you've gathered everything together, you send it out, you know, you print everything out and you send it out to be bound um, and you can distribute it that way to people or you can burn it to CD-ROM. Um, so that's a kind of a typical use case, but there are lots of other use cases um, where you're gathering together information, uh, basically different documents into, into a single set. And you're sharing that. So, um, like a witness deposition uh, prep, right? Is you're 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 preparing a witness for a deposition, and you know, hey, they're going to ask you about these these you know ten documents and these thirty emails, right? You know that that's what they're going to ask the, the person about, and you want to be able to put all of those together in one place. Uh, maybe add some notes to them, add some structure to it, um, add some guidance for your witness about, you know, just so they're prepared uh, and they know the best way to you know answer questions about those documents. Um, and those are just two. Um, I mean, there's dozens more. There are things I've never even thought about. Um, but it's just really interesting how common this this basic scenario repeats itself within law firms. Oh, that's very nice. Now, you know, I, I'm I'm familiar with a lot of our third parties, the the software vendors that integrate and provide additional functionality. And I know that there are a handful of third parties out there that already do this type of feature and integrate with that document. So that capability was already there. So I'm, I'm curious, why did we decide to go this route and to create set builder versus relying on our third parties to do that? Well, some of this was an opportunity that presented itself because we had a customer that had built this application on top of net documents. Um, and I can get to that in a minute. But but in terms of, you know, the benefits of, of using set builder versus using a, another vendor's application that already integrates with net documents, I, I think there are there are several reasons. Um, one is is 
those platforms, those other those other products generally are targeted at transactional attorneys and doing closing transactions. Um, but we saw this as broader. And I just mentioned earlier, right, some use cases that go well beyond just the transactional closings. Um, so we wanted to be able to support all of those different use cases. Um, and then the, the second part really is um, it just has to do with uh, security and due diligence and training. Um, you know, every time you 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 license one of these additional applications, um, you have to do a lot of things, right? You have to vet to make sure the application is secure. Then um, you need to train your users about how to use it. Right now, it's another place for them to go. It's another thing for them to learn. Um, and, and depending on the application, I mean, that may be necessary. That may be that may not be an issue at all. Um, but if what you're doing is really core to document, the document creation process. Um, then it may make sense just to have that all within that document. Um, and I can think of other things as well, like you know the ability to do comparisons and 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 um, um, and, and OCR and things like that, right? Being able to do that all within that document just just makes sense because you're doing other things with documents. Yeah, no, I I I agree. I was just curious as to why we went that route. And and as you were going through and responding, you talked about that this technology was developed by one of our customers and we'll go ahead and give them full credit it's Chapman and Cutler out of Chicago and you know they were the ones that designed the original version i think they even called it closing binders because it was designed specifically to meet their needs and they were the ones that designed and developed it but then we acquired the basically the intellectual property from them and then as you mentioned made it a little bit well not a little bit, but we made it more generic to apply to other use cases. I'm curious, how how did that come about? Did Chapman and Cutler come to us and say, hey, look at this cool thing we created? Were we just in a meeting with them and they happened to, to mention it, you know, just as a comment? How, how did it come about? Well, I mean, so I actually don't have a firsthand account of the origin story for Set Builder. Um, I believe it was I believe it was Leonard Johnson at that Documents who was meeting with them and saw the application and had the idea that this would be something that would be great to um, bring into the to the fold, so to speak. So I was not directly involved with that. Um, I came in I came in later, you know, when I remember Leonard mentioning that he had seen this and did we think it did it? Did I think it was a good idea that we acquired the technology, uh, which, I, which I certainly did. Uh, but it was definitely, I would say, the light bulb moment was was his and not mine. So I don't want to steal any of his. No, no worries. In fact, maybe we should instead of calling it Set Builder, we should call it Leonard's Set Builder. Name it after him. <laughs> sure, LJ's set builder. There you sure. go. I like that. Let's uh, let's design a logo now. Yeah. All right. So so kind of the last question to wrap this up and a little bit more broad is you know you've had experience at a law firm as a as a practicing attorney and now you're a a, a legal technologist. Um, do you foresee a trend? So right, Chapman and Colors is one example of a law firm developing technology, and then essentially selling it to their technology provider. Do you foresee that this could become a trend with with uh, other, other law firms? Uh, I mean, if you mean a trend of law firms developing technology and then selling it to like to some other vendor, um, I, you know, I, I don't really know that there'll be a trend. I'm sure that it will happen on an ad hoc basis. Um, I mean, you're definitely seeing um, you're definitely seeing law firms developing technologies. A lot of them will have subsidiaries um, that will develop technology that they can sell 
to their clients that they can sell to non-clients. Um, th that's definitely a trend that you're seeing, especially as you move to the cloud, right? And the cloud makes that type of delivery possible. Um, so you see that with, you know, uh, firms doing it with, you know, putting together sets of documents for like corporate formation and things like that and, and due diligence in other areas. So, so you are seeing, you're seeing some of that. Um, I mean, whether that business model will hold up for them. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying I'm dubious, but you know, a lot of them are sort of moving into these other spaces and whether they'll decide to continue with that in two or three or five years, I, I think the jury is still out on that. Um, I mean, one thing kind of related to that is, is even if you're just talking about law firms that build their own technology, um, and Chapman and Cutler's a great example. I mean, they're very forward thinking. They're doing a lot of innovative things. Um, you know, it's really, I find there's really a, a culture that's required of the law firm to do that successfully. Um, and I can tell you, I mean, having worked, having worked at uh, two law firms, on the sort of the, the, the non-legal side and more of the technology side, it's amazing how many of these homegrown apps exist and then essentially just die on the vine over time. Um, I think we know from that documents, right? It's, it's, it's a huge, it's a tremendous amount of work to, um, uh, to maintain the, the applications you've worked on, both to make sure that, you know, information data that changes when the firm is supported, but also just, you know, different, it supports different technology, different browsers. I, I remember working with, a, uh, when I was at another vendor, working with a, a client who had developed an application that would only work in like IE6. And, and it was just an amazing thing. I mean, they just never maintained this application and it just was becoming more and more difficult for people to use because you, it wouldn't work on modern browsers. Um, and, and that's just a challenge that law firms are gonna have if they're gonna build all these applications and then who's going to maintain them over time? Um, because the, you're going to have more and more applications built, but probably the size of the of the technology staff will stay constant, um, and it's very difficult to keep up to date. Which is one of the reasons that you you know that law firms have traditionally used mostly you know third party applications, whether they're cloud based or or installed. Um, so I, I do foresee you know firms may kind of revisit should we be building so many things ourselves because because in the it, it, you know the version one or version 1.1 sure that's easy but when you get into version two or three and it's five or ten years later um you know no one's going to remember how those applications work no one's going to be maintaining them um so i you know I'm, I'm very curious as to how that all works out yeah and it's interesting you know one of the things that i've seen over the past couple of years or so is not necessarily that firms are developing their own technologies, but when when you look at the larger firms that have more resources, it's they seem to be forming an incubator type of environment and inviting startups to come play within that incubator, whether they provide funding, provide office space, or you know something along those lines. And so I I see potentially that that's less of a risk for firms with some of the same types of benefits where perhaps they can provide input into the direction of that particular product that might better meet their needs than something off the shelf. Yeah, yeah that, that is an interesting trend. I mean, if you're working with, uh, you know, startups, um, but relying on them to do the work, I think that's one thing. I, but it's, you know, for a lot of these things, I mean, I've been, I've been in legal for 25 years. Um, you know, there have been a lot of trends um, that have kind of come and gone. Um, and so whether these will stick or not, I think is is hard to say. Uh, but I would be curious, um, 
you know, there's a lot of buzzwords. There's a lot of legal project management, alternate fee arrangements, right? I mean, not that those things have necessarily gone away, but there were some firms that were very hot on them for a few years and then have sort of like let them kind of, you know, trickle away. So, um, you know, so we'll, we'll definitely see what happens. I know for net documents, we've been around 20 years, we're in for the long haul. Um, but, um, you know, whether, whether firms will have the same, um, you know, long-term view for how they approach technology, um, especially things that they develop on their own, um, I'd just be very curious to see what happens. Yeah, only, only time will tell, that's for sure. Yes. Well, Mark, thank you so much for taking some of your time and, and spending it with me. It's, it's been a great interview, and, and I know the three or four or maybe now five listeners that we have are definitely going to appreciate it. So thank you for coming on the show. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much. And here we are, the last segment of our podcast. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Mark. He's, he's just a great guy and, and uh, good to talk to. And so I want to finish up this episode with a very interesting story. In fact, it's a story about toxoplasma. Have you ever heard that word? I hadn't heard the word until I'd done some research and, and came across this. So toxoplasma, that's such a daunting and complex word. You know, in a nutshell, it simply means it's a single cell relative of the parasites that cause malaria. So this parasite, this, this toxoplasma, has another more common name. It's also called the cat litter parasite. The reason for this is many times people actually catch this parasite by emptying a cat's litter box. And toxoplasma is commonly found in cat feces. So if you've got cats, you may have toxoplasma. And what I've, what I've read as I did research is that there are millions of people that may have toxoplasma and not even know it. So in most cases, it doesn't harm humans. But that's not why I'm talking about it. So when you look at the life cycle of toxoplasma, it normally takes the parasite from cats to the prey of cats and then back again. So let's explain this a little bit. So while toxoplasma is inside a cat, the parasites reproduce and they create egg-like offspring, which leave the feline, and the feline in their cat droppings. The parasite can survive outside the cat in soil and other environments for weeks or even months. Rats, mice, and other mammals can then go and sometimes they'll ingest the eggs, which then produce cysts, mainly in the brain. And then when the cats eat the infected prey, the cats get infected once again. And, you know, it sure sounds like that vicious life cycle for the parasites going back and forth and back and forth. But that's just the backstory of the interesting fact for today. For many years, researchers have known about toxoplasma and have been studying the effects in various environments. And like most research, they eventually wind up experimenting with rats to observe the effects of this parasite. And here's how they did the study and their very interesting results. Researchers released both healthy and infected rats into large enclosures. They sprayed corners of these enclosures with various odors, including the urine of rats, rabbits, cats, and other animals. The healthy rats became anxious the moment they approached and detected the cat urine. You know, that was really a wise move on their part. The unhealthy rats, so the ones that were infected, were indifferent to the cat urine. In fact, some of the infected rats spent extra time checking out the areas where the researchers had sprayed the cat urine. 
Would you consider that a bold move or a stupid one? Well, in this case, I would consider it a stupid one. Once the researchers observed and confirmed this behavior, so they did it many, many times in many different settings, they took their testing to greater lengths. They found that the infected rats did not lose their fear across the board, just their fear of cats. The infected rats still became anxious when they approached dog urine, and they could also become trained to get scared of new stimuli. Now, don't ask me how they trained rats to become scared of new stuff. That's way beyond me. But they found other things, too. Not only did they lose their fear of cats, but also became more aroused when closing in on cat scents. How about them apples? Not only did they lose their fear of their greatest mortal enemy, but also became more attracted to it. Talk about a love-hate relationship. So long live Toxoplasma. And that's the end of our podcast, or I guess the end of my podcast, since it was just me. Thanks for sitting along with us. and Thanks for listening. And, and we hope that you've enjoyed this and it's been some insight. If you would like to be interviewed, by us on Legally Cloud. Go ahead and tweet us at Legally Cloud if you have comments, feedback, questions, topics you want to hear. We're more than happy to contribute to your education as well at Legally Cloud. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Until next time, keep your head in the clouds. <laughs>